Good evening and welcome to second to the last lesson in First Peter as we look at First Peter chapter 5. And if you would please turn there and look, we'll look at the first seven verses of the chapter. First Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Entitled the message tonight, Shepherds and Their Flocks. Shepherds and Their Flocks. Just for a change of pace. We will read section by section as we go through, but let's just read the, the seven verses. It's not very long. Uh, if you can endure two chapters in Genesis, you can endure seven letters and seven verses in First Peter. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over these, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, or in some texts I think it just says you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, to all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For, quoting from the Old Testament, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. <clears throat> may God bless the reading of his word. Now, for the last couple of chapters, if you recall, Peter's been dealing with our relationships with those who are enemies of the church and our attitudes as believers towards persecution and towards suffering, how we should respond to it. Uh, last week we tried to emphasize the or last time, not last week we weren't here, but last time we tried to emphasize the importance of always keeping an eternal perspective when faced with any kind of trial or difficulty. In other words, not getting caught up in the trial or difficulty, looking beyond it to our eternal hope in Christ, the fact that whatever we suffer here is temporary compared to what we have in Christ. That's always important to keep that perspective in mind. We also noted Peter's constant use of the if-then statements. I hope you've noted that as we've gone through. It's important as we read the text and not just blindly read through it without thinking of the context, the structure, the, the phrases that are used. And when Peter or Paul or James or John are using phrases that pose a question or pose a contrast in some way or do this, if you do this, then this, we should look for those and try and see how that applies to us. What means? What does it mean to, to, by these if-then statements telling us how to live? <clears throat> he treats these far-flung saints, as he's addressed there in the beginning of the epistle, he, he treats them as kind of his own personal people, I guess you might say, his own congregation. He dresses them as dear friends, as beloved. And as we mentioned, it, it's quite possible that these believers, being mostly Gentile, had never faced religious persecution like the Jews had. Okay? They, they may have been worshiping pagan gods and goddesses, which was fine with Rome. They didn't object to that. Um, so, and the same would have been true if they were under Greek authority. But in this particular situation, being Gentiles, since they haven't really faced a severe persecution, Peter's goal is to encourage them, as he's been doing here, to focus their attention on their Savior, not on their suffering. And that's important for us, too. When we're facing trials and tribulations, focus on your Savior, not on the suffering. Okay? Now, he begins, as you recall, by exhorting them to rejoice in their trials to the extent that they share in Christ's glory when he comes. Uh, what joy shall be ours if we're in Christ when we see him face to face, as we quoted from one commentary, I believe, what a privilege, what an honor for Christians to participate in Christ's sufferings. 
as I said a minute ago, if we keep this eternal perspective on things, we know that Christ's sufferings ended in the payment for our sins. That's one thing. When we think of Christ's sufferings, what should they mean to us? Well, it paid for all of our sins. That's a wonderful thing when you think about that. Also, excuse me, that payment for our sins ended up being complete in God's eyes and subsequently led, we know, to his resurrection, okay, after he had paid for our sins. And our suffering will ultimately end in our complete sanctification and our resurrection as well. So we, in a sense, match him in that sense that we are totally justified in him and we will be completely sanctified in him and we will be resurrected as he was. 2 Corinthians 1.7, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. The Greek word there uh, translated consolation is periklesis, which literally means solace or comfort or consolation. It's a root word that means to call near. And of course, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a paraclete, which is an advocate or someone who calls, draws near to you uh, and, and speaks for you. So that's the idea there, that as we endure the sufferings of Christ, so we will also partake of the consolation, the comfort of being with him forever. Okay. Next, we noted that Peter's challenge to us in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, is to be sure that you're being reproached for Christ's namesake and not for your own sin. And we pointed out the comfort that Peter has repeatedly given in this epistle, that we're blessed if, blessed if we suffer for righteousness' sake. And that's an echo of our Savior's words in, in the Beatitudes. We read a couple of portions of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. He said to rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Uh, and Peter reemphasizes that point here with his words where he says, the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you as you endure these things for him. There's no shame. There's no shame in suffering as a Christian. But rather, as Peter tells us in verse 16 of chapter 4, let us glorify God in it for it identifies us with Christ. And our goal should be to glorify him by our life or by our death, as Paul tells us in Philippians 1.20. So finally, last time, we considered Peter's words confessing or concerning the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's a very serious phrase. We often like to brush that off, but it's speaking to us, doesn't it? It's speaking to God's people. Time to begin for God's judgment uh, to begin at the house of God. In this, Peter is intimating that God uses chastening via trials to purify his church, the bride of his son, that he might present her unto him blameless and pure, as he states it in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And we can see the example, of course, in the Old Testament. What did God do to Israel, his chosen people? He chastened them when they went astray, when they weren't what they were doing what they were supposed to do. He admonished them through prophets, and he chastened them through exiles in some cases. So as the church of God uh, is reviewed today, as we look around us, we look at our own body believers, we need to not... Uh, be too worried if we need chasing because it's for our good. It's for our purification, our sanctification. Not that we want it, not that we should eagerly look for it because that means we're not living as we should. But we should pray that God would purify his church because a pure church would have a greater impact on the world, obviously, than a watered-down church or a church that is not what it ought to be. <coughs> Excuse me. And also I think we mentioned uh, something I've, I've tried to mention from time to time. Um, we may face God's purifying work in our lives here on earth, but we don't have to face his wrath, uh, for Christ has faced, faced that for us. He had made that payment. He has endured that wrath for us. So that's something to be very thankful for. Though we deserve his wrath, we don't have to face it because Christ did for us. But 
On the other hand, we need to think of those who are not in Christ uh, by comparison. Though the wicked may seem to escape the correcting hand of God here on earth, they may get away with things. And when we look at today, we think of all the crazy things going on in our own country, the immorality, the promotion of sexual immorality, uh, greed and power you know, uh, struggles and things like that. We can think, well, they seem to be getting away with it, all these people, the, the Bates and the Soroses and all the others uh, in these, these times. Yet their fate, their future... Uh, should not be envied, for their end is eternal damnation and separation from God, and they do not repent and believe on Christ. So don't envy the wicked, no matter how it seems like they're getting away with things. Rather, rest in Christ and be assured of your eternal hope in him. <clears throat> Peter quotes here in the latter part of chapter 4 uh, from Proverbs 11.31 to show how dangerous a position it is that the ungodly are in if they continue to reject God and the gospel uh, he says there, in that, if you're looking back at verse 16, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 17 and 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? A very humbling thought. So Peter concluded his thoughts there in chapter 4 by exhorting those of God's people who suffer to commit themselves to their faithful creator. He is faithful to trust him, to work all things together for our good. And to continue to do good, those two words, do good, which is to pursue righteousness and holiness in our daily lives. And that echoes very similar words uh, that Peter used in 1 Peter 2.15, where he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, there's those two words again, by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Whether we suffer for our faith or not, we can faithfully trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct our path. You want to have your path directed? You want to be know what God's will is? Well, then trust in him with your whole heart. Lean not upon your understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him. Then your path will be directed. So we'll move on now to chapter 5 and look at Peter's teaching regarding the need for strong, trustworthy leaders in the church during times of suffering and humility and submission in following their lead. So... This is a great chapter for us elders, right, Brian? Amen. <laughs> no, it is wonderful to have a chapter that speaks directly to us. You know, we have First Timothy and, and Titus as well, but this helps us to be encouraged and gives us admonition as elders. So let's uh, look at these first four verses again. His main message of this, this epistle is basically concluded in chapter four. When I was talking about all the different reasons he wrote the epistle, the three reasons, he kind of concludes that thought in chapter 4. And then chapter 5, he gives some pointed, very pointed um, exhortations, first to the elders, and then ends with some personal greetings, as we see at the end of the chapter. But let's read verses 1 through 4 again, just to get into the context here of what he's talking about. <clears throat> the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Well, we'll stop. Let me stop there at verse 4. I'm sorry. We'll stop at verse 4. <clears throat> Now, as we know, the term elder here is not a reference to age, but to the office of elder. Okay, that's what's being referred to here. Note that Peter does not put himself above these men. This is a real humility uh, on his part. He doesn't say, I am the 
better elder. I'm the elder elder. You know, I'm the old guy or whatever, the apostle. No, he, he speaks very graciously here, uh, putting himself on an equal level with these elders who are in the churches to whom he's writing. He is their fellow elder who, like them, cares for the note flock of God, that term, flock of God, the church. He does, however, identify himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which can be taken two ways. Um, truthfully, Peter was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, correct? He witnessed it. He lived with him, and he saw him suffering. And in that sense, he's affirming his apostolic uh, position and seeks to motivate his fellow elders uh, via his authority as an apostle. So in that case, he is kind of in a sense, stepping above them, saying, I was there. I saw the sufferings of Christ. I can testify that he suffered and died on the cross for you. He was there. Okay, so that's, he's using that to exhort them from that position of authority. However, as Peter has been demonstrating here throughout uh, this whole epistle, uh, he's a witness. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, like any preacher or elder should be who proclaims the gospel of the suffering Savior for sinners. Turn back to Acts Chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 30 and 32, 30 through 32. Acts chapter 5, and this is, they're answering here in the, uh, after they're, they're put on trial by the council, uh, Peter's answering, and we'll look, we'll skip verse, um, well, let's go back to verse 29 because it's important. It's context. Peter and the other apostles answered and says, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's an important statement. We all need to keep that in mind, shouldn't we? Then verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God hath exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also, and this is, this is key, is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Luke is intimating here in verse 32, the Holy Spirit through us as believers witnesses to the sufferings of Christ. That's what witnessing is in that sense that we are telling people, we're witnessing to the fact that Christ died for sinners on the cross. Okay, We're telling people that, and the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do that. And the Holy Spirit must, in fact, right, awaken their hearts to understand and to grasp that truth that Christ died for their sins, according to the Scripture. So that's the witnessing being involved here. Yes, not only did Peter physically witness Christ's suffering, but we as Christians, and particularly as elders in this case he's referring to, our witnesses are to proclaim the sufferings of Christ on behalf of sinners. Okay, so that's the picture here that's being given in this context. Not only do we proclaim or witness to Christ's sufferings to redeem his people from their sins, but we also share in the blessed hope that is ours in Christ. So it's not just all about the sufferings, but it's also about the hope that that brings, that glory that will be revealed, as Peter says here in the context. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1 with me real quick, verses 3 to 5 where Peter encouraged us to long for that time, that lively hope, as he called it, when the fullness of our salvation would be revealed. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through five, very powerful portion of Scripture, if you recall it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively or living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> Excuse me. As elders, we have a great message to proclaim to people. 
that we have a living hope. We have a hope that's not just uh, a mirage or something that's based upon someone's past you know, events, something in the past that no one knows about. No, we have a living hope, a hope that is in a living Savior. He rose from the dead. He's not still in the grave. He is God of very God. And if we die to sin and live to God in Christ, we have this hope, this hope when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. That's Colossians 3 and verse 4. So we have a message to proclaim great promises to hold up before all, that not only do we acknowledge and we speak of the sufferings of Christ, but we also speak of the salvation that is in Christ and what that means to us both now and for all of eternity. Excuse me. In one sense, believers share in Christ's glory now, for we are what? Seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are now, not we will be. Ephesians 1.20. Yet we long for, we long for and hope for the fulfillment of that realization of that glory that one day which shall be revealed, as Peter says here in our text. Peter next, in verses 2 and 3 in our text, sets forth the responsibilities here of elders and the proper attitude of elders in fulfilling them. If you recall Jesus' words to Peter in John's gospel when he appeared to them after the resurrection, he said what? Buy me a Coke? Feed my sheep. Okay, that's his responsibility. The responsibility of the apostles all, but in particular he spoke to Peter because he was a representative there of the elders, or of the, of the apostles, and the elder at this time. He said, feed my sheep. The primary job of an elder, an under-shepherd, is to feed God's sheep to teach them from God's word. That is our primary responsibility. We're to follow the pattern of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to remember that we are working under him, not replacing him. Okay, that's important that we're working under him. He is our over-shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. Okay, that's something we need to keep in mind, that we don't usurp his position as the one who's over God's flock. Excuse me. So we have this this challenge before us as an elder to be sure that we're teaching God's word. The imagery, as we know here, which was typical, obviously quite common to them at that time, even the Old Testament, of a shepherd caring for the flock, uh, borrowed from that, that Old Testament picture there of a shepherd. It was a common imagery, but the word flock here is a description of the church. It's used only four times, by the way, in the New Testament. It was interesting. I thought it would be used more than that. Used by Jesus, first of all, in Luke chapter 12. In verse 32, to calm his disciples, he says, be, you know, be, don't be worried, don't worry, little flock, you know, I care for you. There's that use of the term flock. Peter also uses it to address the elders uh, that both should, both here in this text, that both should shepherd the flock, okay? And verse 3, be examples to the flock. The Greek word for flock is in the diminutive form, which means it's a term of endearment. This flock is precious to God precious in God's sight, and it should be precious to the elders who are caring for that flock as well. The elders are to serve, as we see here in our text in, uh, I think it's verse uh, 2, as overseers. Essentially, this term is interchangeable with the term elder. I think we've discussed this a little bit before, uh, or shepherd, although each one denotes a slightly different responsibility within the, the flock, okay, an overseer. The Greek word that is translated overseer or oversight is episcopio, and it means to look upon or to inspect or to care for something. In other words, you don't just casually look at something and move on. No, you inspect it. You care for it. You're concerned about the details. So we as elders are to be concerned about the details of our flock. We don't just treat them as, we don't treat you as indifferent numbers in a pew, 
but your people are important to us. You're precious to us. We want to care about you. We want to make sure that we are caring for your needs. So you can see how far this would lead an elder's concern to people in his church. A loving concern for the spiritual well-being of the flock and a desire to keep them from error as well, from the harm of error. <coughs> me. Hebrews 12, 15, I'm sorry, 12, 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So our job is to be careful that there isn't any spirit of bitterness developing in the church, any uh, competition or uh, you know, disputes that arise. We want to keep everything on the, on the same level, everyone thinking the same, loving the same, encouraging the same, living the same for the glory of God. Um, Peter speaks about this oversight in both a negative and a positive way. Okay? Uh, Robert Layton, uh, the Puritan, put it this way. There are three evils. Three evils the apostle wants to be removed from his work. Okay? Peter wants three things to be removed from his work. Reluctance, covetousness, and having the wrong kind of ambition. Okay? Reluctance, covetousness, and having the wrong kind of ambition. He goes on to say they should be replaced with willingness, and eagerness, I'm sorry, we got willingness and eagerness to serve and exemplary behavior. So we've got the contrast between reluctance, covetousness, and the wrong kind of ambition with willingness, eagerness, and exemplary behavior. So you can see the contrast that we want people who are, we should be concerned about the flock living in a way that is willing, the elders willing to serve and the people are willing to serve. There's an eagerness to serve and there's exemplary behavior promoting holiness and righteousness and truth within the flock. First, those who are elders are not to be reluctant to serve the flock. This is not to be kind of, oh, I've got to do it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. God's given me this burden to bear. That's not what the attitude should be. We should undertake to do the work with a willing heart and with the sole purpose, the sole purpose of fulfilling God's glory and his will. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 9, 7, similarly expresses this Proper attitude we are to have. And this is the, the goal here about the, the attitude. Proper attitude, for instance, when he speaks about giving. Okay, we talked about it when we looked at the, at the gifts. He says, in order to have a proper attitude of giving, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And notice how these words are used here in our text. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, we're speaking here primarily of human compulsion. Okay? A man should never be pushed into the office of elder out of a so-called necessity or popular opinion or ecclesiastical control. However, though he should not yield to human pressure uh, to be appointed to that office, yet it is true that a man who is called by God to serve the church does feel a spiritual compulsion, a conviction by God that this is his calling. This is where God wants him to be. So we're not to be compelled by people or by some, you know, and neither are we as servants of God, as shepherds, to try and serve the people by compulsion. Oh, i got to do this. There's a forcefulness to this. No, there should be a willingness. Secondly, Peter is saying here that one fulfilling the role of elder is not to do it for financial gain. This echoes Paul's qualification for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 3 and, 1, and Titus 1, 7. Sadly, as we know today with these mega churches and things that have sprung up with multi-million dollar budgets and to preach a prosperity gospel, some elders expect in those churches a big income for their services. Now, Jesus did tell his disciples in Luke 10:7 that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, that's the truth. When referring to their preaching from village to village, he says the laborer is worthy of their wages. 
Also, Paul continues this thought in 1 Corinthians 9.14 when he says, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Um, I also want to see 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 with that same thought. However, to quote one other author's opinion, what is forbidden is not the desire for fair rumination, but the sordid love of gain. Rather, in the positive sense, Peter tells them here in verse 2 that they should be eager to serve. We need to be eager to serve, not reluctant. There must be an enthusiasm to the task of feeding God's flock, serving his people, and their satisfaction is found in serving Christ, not in serving money. That satisfaction. Every believer, my friends, should be driven by a compulsion, if we're driven by anything, driven by a compulsion of the Holy Spirit to serve his or her Savior. That should be what's compelling us, the Holy Spirit compelling us to live for Christ. Third thing Peter says here is that elders are to not to act as lords over those entrusted to them. Elders are not to lead by manipulation or intimidation, nor are they to think of themselves as more important than each member of the flock. We're equally important before God, for we're all one in Christ, aren't we? We all have value before God. <clears throat> Jesus gave a pretty good lesson, I think, regarding this proper attitude of his disciples back in Matthew chapter 20. And we'll look at that, Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Turn with me there. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. This is where the sons of Zebedee kind of come in there and stir up a little trouble by saying we want to do this, or their mother does. Verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself, called his disciples. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rather than act holier than thou, that's not what we should be doing. Rather than act holier than thou and flaunting our authority, elders are to be an example to the flock, as Peter uses the term here, an example to the flock in godliness, in humility, and a servant's heart. Thus Paul admonished Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Let me read that again. Paul admonished Timothy, who was an elder, to be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, in spirit, faith, and in purity. That's no easy task for us as elders, and therefore we really uh, obviously need your prayers because we're subject to the same weaknesses and same temptations that all of the saints are. We're, not, we're superior in that sense that we're not subject to temptation. Yet, you know, we are called to preach the word. We're not only called to preach the word, we're called to live by that word. We might be an example to you. So we need your prayers that we might do that. We might fulfill that role. <clears throat> Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the writer there expresses the importance of the flock's submission and I'm just guess submissive obedience to the elders and the responsibility that God has given to elders. It reads, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as they that must give an account. They may do so with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Okay, so we are to teach you, instruct you, and we have a responsibility before God to do that. But you have a responsibility to be submissive to us and pray for us 
and watch that as we watch over your souls that we can give a good account. We can do it with joy, not with, oh, you know, I wish they were doing better. But rather we want to say we rejoice in the, in the growth and maturity that you have in Christ. <clears throat> Lastly, in the um, first section here of chapter 5 that we're looking at tonight, Peter gives the motivation to elders to be examples they should be in light of their accountability to Christ. We are accountable to Christ. Simon Kistemacher points out in his commentary, pastors should never forget that they are directly responsible to Jesus. Or directly responsible to Jesus. They ought to remember that the church belongs to Jesus. And even though they faithfully love and serve God's people, it is Christ's church. Elders and pastors are under shepherds and are accountable to Christ to guide the sheep into the green pastures of his word, we can call it, I guess, and feed them spiritual, spiritual word. There's only, this is the only place in the Bible, by the way, where Christ is called the chief shepherd. It's the only time that term is used. In Hebrews chapter 13, the writer refers to Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. So he is not only the chief and the great as to his authority and power, but he is compassionate and caring for his sheep. That's the kind of shepherd we have, the great shepherd over us. He is great, he is mighty, he is powerful, he is compassionate. He is also a glorious shepherd that we can worship and serve. Thus, he's very particular. He's particular as he is the great shepherd. He has qualifications, obviously, uh, that he sets before us as elders. He is particular about the qualifications and characters of those under shepherds uh, that, who care for his sheep. Those whom he chooses and calls, he equips for such a position, uh, and they will be rewarded accordingly, as our text says here, when he comes again, if, and there is that if statement again, if they are found to be faithful servants. And that's our challenge, isn't it, for all of us, but particularly as elders, to be found to be faithful to the calling God has given us. The rewards of men can rot, they can rust, they be destroyed, but the spiritual rewards that God gives shall never fade away. And by the way, here, looking back at our text uh, where it says that he will receive the crown of glory, um, the literal translation here uh, of the Greek uh, is, um, I think it's, there, there is the crown, it is here is the crown which is eternal glory. The crown is eternal glory. That's what it is. It's not, in other words, a physical metal object put upon your head, but it's the crown of eternal glory. That's what's being referred to in the text. Okay, let's finish up now in this particular portion by looking at verses 5 through 7. This deals with the conduct of the flock. The first seven verses dealt with the conduct of the elders. Now we're going to look at the conduct of the flock. So, he exhorts the elders to fulfill their calling to be under shepherds. Now he turns to the flock here in verses 5 through 7. Let's read it together. Likewise, you younger people, or I think, like I said, some of your texts just made you younger, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We note the words in the same way here at the beginning, or likewise, uh, as some contexts have, in the same way or likewise. He is moving from the specific role within the church uh, to the general rules for the body of Christ. Okay? As the elders are subject to Christ, the chief shepherd, the flock is subject to the elders or under shepherds. Okay? There's a hierarchy here. So as the young men should be subject, so the young men, in this particular, in a general sense, the young men should be subject to the older. Most commentators state that the use of the word elders here in this particular verse, in verse 5, as, and, and the word of verse 5 is contrasted with younger 
are referring to age rather than office. So we start out in the first verse of chapter 5, we're talking about elders as an office. Here, it's more likely talking about uh, older people or elder elderly people that should show, be shown respect by the younger people, okay? <clears throat> and remember, Peter has been exhorting elders to serve the flock and to be examples to believers. Now he exhorts the young men to submit to authority, okay? So these younger men submit to the authority that's over you, uh, whether it be an elderly person or the elder in the church. He's establishing, establishing this order in the church and in all of life a restored order that has been damaged by the fall, a respect for elders, okay, that should be there. Peter reiterates this point in the uh, latter half here of verse 5 by saying not only the younger, but note the words, all of you, not some of you, not most of you, but all of you, all the members of the flock are to be submissive to one another. That's a repeat of the second of Peter's three themes here in this epistle, to be submissive to one another, to, to show respect and love for one another, to not lord yourself over each other, because of abilities or even gifts you might have, but rather to be submissive to one another in the fear of God. Also follows Paul's admonition in Ephesians 5.21, where he tells us to give thanks always to God for all things in the name of Christ. And then he says to do it submitting to one another in the fear of God. So Paul and, Paul and Peter are on the same page here, what we're to be, how we're to live as Christians. Speaks of our equality before God. Even though there are positions of authority, elders, deacons, etc. Yet it speaks, this speaks of our equality. We're all one in Christ, aren't we? doesn't matter whether you're man, woman, slave, free. You're all one in Christ if you're trusting in him as your Savior. So there's that sense of unity and equality before God. And it leads to Peter's next exhortation to be what? Clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. People who are willing to submit to God-given authority will most likely not be boastful or proud, but rather humble. The language here uh, suggests a type of clothing that portrays a humble status, okay? Clothe yourself with humility. Uh, in the context of the time, the phrase to be clothed with humility literally means to gird oneself for labor, to gird oneself for labor. In that particular time period, slaves used to tie or knot a white scarf or an apron over their clothing to distinguish themselves from the freedmen, okay? That's what the distinction was. You wore some sort of white scarf or apron, which made people know you were a slave, as opposed to no white meant you were a freedman. Thus, Peter is suggesting here that everyone might recognize us as believers if we clothe ourselves with humility, okay? We don't have to wear a white rag or, or thing, but we clothe ourselves. We live our life in humility, submitting to one another, not lording ourselves over each other. A humble life, a life that is, is clothed in humility, will reflect to the people around us that we're servants. We're servants of Christ. We're servants of other people as well. Peter gives support the support for this exhortation by directly quoting from Proverbs 3.34 here, or indirectly, I guess you might call it, at the end of chapter uh, verse 5. James also quotes, interestingly enough, James quotes from the same passage in James chapter 4 and verse 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thus suggesting that this was a very well-used proverb at that time in the synagogue and in the church. If you would have the grace of God abundantly supplied in your life, here's the if-then statement, if you would have God's grace abundantly supplying your life, then walk in humility, my friends. Walk in humility. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, listen to this text from the Old Testament. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit, to receive the spirit of the 
humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What we have here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 is another one of, of, of Peter's if-then statements. If you know that God is opposed to the proud, he's opposed to self-centered people, then you know that he promises to give grace to the humble, then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, as Peter's quoting here. The if-then statement is, if you are humble, if you know that's what he wants, well, then humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Be humble towards other people. If you, expect, if you want God to bless you in this area, then that's what you need to live in the light of these truths, to be humble. Scripture is replete with admonitions to be humble and the consequences of not being humble. As I think I mentioned before, humility should be the hallmark or one of the main characteristics of Christians. And Peter is challenging us here as God's people to submit ourselves or subject ourselves to him with the sense of a total confidence in him, a total reliance upon him, which means we don't rely on ourselves. That's where humility comes from, by relying upon him and not thinking too highly of ourselves. <clears throat> what does God require of us? Well, he tells us in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want to write that verse down. Look it up. Micah 6, 8. We are to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus himself told us in Luke 14, 11, For whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Also see James 4, 10. God rules by his mighty hand, therefore it is foolish to exalt ourselves against him and his will. Peter's speaking to these afflicted saints here, and to us, and he's telling them that the way of victory over affliction is by humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves to the perfect will of God, finding contentment in his will, whatever it might be, again, looking to the eternal perspective, not to the immediate pain and suffering you might be going through, but looking eternally to what is yours in Christ. <clears throat> The promise here that he will exalt you or that he will lift you up in what? Due time. Ah, there's an interesting phrase. In due time. Notice not your time, but in due time or in the proper time when his will is fulfilled. Recall Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Our lifetime, though it be full of persecution or affliction, or perhaps pleasant, is but a small moment compared to eternity in the fullness of joy that is ours in Christ. We can sing. We can sing with the hymn writer we have done here before this church, but we can sing it even now in our hearts. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget, though, though the strong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. When we look around our society today and the wickedness and the evil and the disgusting things that are going on, we can, you know, we can get kind of the, off, the strong is pretty, pretty often around here. It's pretty strong. But we know that God's ruling it. He's over it all. He's sovereign. He's controlling all things. He, by his own providence and things we can't understand, he is directing all things for his glory, for the benefit of his people. We just celebrated a couple days ago 9-11. You know, the, the terrible event in the history of our nation, in which thousands of people were killed. God wasn't caught off surprised by that. God didn't say, oh, man, I wish I'd stopped those guys from doing that. All that was under his control. Every single person who died on that day was not a mistake. That was their appointed time to go into eternity. 
The question is, were they prepared for eternity? And we need to be aware of that, that God allows cataclysmic events to take place uh, because he's in control and he's directing everyone's life. We have a limited number of days here on earth. We don't know when, when we'll end or how we'll end that life. But we need to be prepared, obviously, for that. And we need to trust God to direct the affairs of men and do our best to be a light, obviously, in this dark world around us to show them that he's in control, that he is God. If that's true, that God's still the ruler yet in the midst of all, and we by faith commit our souls to his keeping and trust in his providential directing of all things for his glory and our benefit, then, verse 7 here in our text, becomes easy. It becomes easy. You know, sometimes our fallen minds have trouble grasping these scriptural principles of opposites, but nonetheless, they're true. If you would be healed, you must acknowledge your sin sickness. If you would be lifted up, you must humble yourself. If you would live eternally, trusting in Christ as your Savior, then you must die to the flesh. You must die to the flesh. Cast yourself like a broken vessel at his feet, and he, the master potter, will repair you, make you whole again, and use you for his glory. Do not, do not hold on to any cares or worries or fears, but cast them all at his feet. And know, and know that he cares for you, Peter says. He cares for you. You're not just a number out there in the midst of all the population that spreads across this globe. You are, if you're his person in particular, beloved by him. He cares for you. He knows you. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. So, beloved, let us rest on this sure promise that the Lord, our God, who sent his Son to die for us, does indeed care for us. Let us live accordingly, not in worry or in fear or in doubt, but in a holy confidence, a holy confidence in him. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Peter was exhorting these saints in Asia Minor to trust God to care for them and not to fear what man might do to them. We can also do no less today. Let me close with these words from Psalm 37 and verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do it. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Let's pray.